Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Today, we're going to delve into something sparked by an observation in our last podcast, the hypocrisy that rears its head when you apply originalism or textualism to the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. I had mentioned my befuddlement in that podcast about Christmas being a national holiday in the U.S., despite the language that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. What's particularly intriguing about this is how it results from the intersection of religion and politics, particularly in the U.S. Despite the stated intent, as you mentioned, that the U.S. not have an official religion, as a number of other countries have. But we, of course, must recognize that discussing the impacts of religion has the potential to be a bit of a loaded topic. <laughs> but I guess you and I haven't shied away from those in the past, so. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think we have. Whatever one's view of it or about it, religion is clearly a fact of life. Every human culture seems to have religion associated with it. In fact, most have more than one and some have many. So it's clearly central to the human experience. But why? But before we get into that, I want to mention that like in some other podcasts, we're going to have to give a caveat up front. You and I are not religious experts. <laughs> this is more just an attempt to think about religion as it relates to the intersection of politics and psychology. But we should point out to our listeners that you and I did consult a professor and theologian that we know to help us review the issues we're going to discuss. So it's not completely out of left field. <laughs> like some of our other podcasts. No, I, I, we also recognize that this is a huge topic with entire university degrees devoted to it and many, many books written about it. So we're necessarily going to have to focus on just a few aspects of the broader topic. And let's be clear, we're not making arguments for or against religion or religious beliefs. We're just exploring why religion exists, what implication it presents for communities, and you particularly look at those in the U.S. I think it would be helpful, Seth, to our listeners if we shared a bit about our personal involvement with religion, among other things that will help them identify any potential biases on our part. In my case, I was raised Roman Catholic, like my mom. My dad was a non-practicing Protestant of some kind. I actually never knew and still don't what branch of Christianity he grew up in. As an adolescent, I rejected Catholicism. As an adult, I like to describe myself as a rationalist meaning someone who believes humans should aspire to live life as rationally as possible. Admittedly, many would translate that into me being an atheist, but I reject that term and came up with the rationalist label as a result because atheist literally translates to, quote, someone who does not believe in God, unquote, which presupposes, in fact, that there is a God, something that I, like Carl Sagan, respond to by observing, hey, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. <laughs> Fair enough. For me, I was raised in a Reformed Jewish household, and like many Reformed Jews, we observed the major holidays and tenets of the religion, but we weren't very strict. I mean, for example, we didn't keep kosher, but we did go to synagogue, and actually later in life, I actually went to a conservative synagogue. I was bar mitzvahed, and, you know, my family identified culturally very strong with Judaism. To this day, there are a lot of things I admire about the Jewish religion, particularly its focus on the importance of how people act as compared to what they believe and the focus on charity and repairing the world in particular. And I always felt it was okay to keep this seemingly contradictory belief that I could identify with the religion while knowing that a lot of the things we discuss can't literally be true. To me, God was almost more of a metaphor, either for science we just didn't understand yet, or maybe the collective power of all of us. But I will say that events in the last few decades in particular have made it harder to balance the positive and negatives of organized religion, which I know we'll get into. 
So Mark, let's start with admittedly a very simplified background on religion, its purpose, its history, and its general characteristics. The religious scholar Joseph Campbell observed that most Western religious systems, the ones most of us on this podcast are likely familiar with, are generally patriarchal. God is seen as a father figure. That's not as common among many Eastern religious systems, such as Buddhism and Confucianism, as well as in most indigenous religions. But in today's podcast, we're going to largely focus on the intersection of Western religion with modern politics and psychology. Campbell believed that the Western patriarchal approach may have resulted from the massive volcanic explosion on modern-day Santorini, which destroyed the Minoan civilization and surely would have freaked the heck out of everyone living along the Mediterranean shores. It would have looked like somebody was taking action against something they didn't like. But whatever its origins, the common Western patriarchal motif implies and reinforces the importance of social hierarchy, a monotheistic god that sits above all. And what we now know as the Judeo-Christian tradition is generally based on a book or set of books that we call the Bible. It's just a question of which and how many editions you believe in. Similarly, Islam has the Koran. And of course, each religion has a series of prayers and guidelines and rules, and, and everyone follows them to varying degrees. Christianity in particular has gone through multiple evolutions in the last 2,000 years. Although all have their roots with Jesus of Nazareth, new branches have been created and evolved based on political and social conditions. For example, maybe the most famous one in Christianity is, right, Henry VIII's wanting to get a divorce, you know, essentially created the modern Anglican Church. And Martin Luther, as well as others, launched various Protestant sects, at least in part due to perceived and actual corruption within the Catholic Church at the time. And it's important to note, I think, that each religion has its own view on proselytization. Some believe very strongly that it's their mission, both figuratively and literally, to convert others to their religion, while some make it a bit harder to get into their club. I've always thought the two of Christianity's most powerful features were essentially marketing masterstrokes. Anyone, anywhere could join, freeing its growth from how fast the faithful could reproduce by themselves. And you could convert at any time and become a member in good standing, even in the last moments of your life. And I think that contrasts with Jews, right, who, on the other hand, aren't as good marketers in that sense, because they make it a lot more difficult to join. You know, Mark, we're the chosen people, after all. <laughs> That's right. But why does religion exist? In trying to answer that question, most scholars tend to focus on how it provides two key benefits. First, it helps explain all of the unknowns that we each have to deal with in life. And second, it's a powerful community builder, in part because it provides a framework for behavior. Okay, so let's talk about the first one, explaining the unknown. And of course, the biggest unknown in life is what happens after life, what happens after we die. It's essentially impossible to contemplate oneself after death. In particular, you can't imagine a state of nothingness, which suggests we must exist in some fashion after we die. Since we have literally never known a world where we didn't exist, we automatically and subconsciously assume we must still continue to exist in some fashion. I still remember the time I had this next thought right as I was about to fall asleep. Gee, I wonder what that last breath will feel like. <laughs> Let's just say sleep escaped me for quite a while afterwards. Yeah, I can imagine. But I guess in general, right, by offering explanations for things we don't understand or can't understand, including understanding why bad things happen and dealing with grief, religion helps individuals get through life. Put your faith in God, as Christianity, among other faiths, argues. I mean, that can provide hope, which is, you know, frankly, a powerful psychological tool. I know just what you mean. When my father died, one of my brothers noted that our mother's grief was lessened because she knew, absolutely knew, 
that she would see her husband again after she died. Our grief was in a sense much greater because we knew that he was gone forever. Helping people deal with and accept grief is a powerful feature of most religions. Which is a great example of the second benefit you talked about, right? How religion can build a powerful community with mutual support and a framework for behavior. I know I think I'm getting to be a broken record with this next observation, but the human ability to form communities is an enormously powerful evolutionary advantage. It lets us do things as individuals that we could never do alone. But what lets us organize that way? I mean, certainly we appear to have the genetic wiring for family groups and tribes, but larger organizations appear to require some form of abstraction of those capabilities, right? I agree. And religion was one of the first abstractions we appear to have developed to support large-scale communities. My village might be in the south end of a big valley and yours might be on the north, but if we all worship the same God, it's much easier for us to collaborate on building and maintaining a joint irrigation system. So religion facilitated Homo sapiens becoming a dominant species in many ways because it fostered large-scale cooperation, even as it also simultaneously opened the door to all sorts of religious conflicts and wars. Religion enables community building by formalizing and validating the ability to believe in things, things that can be shared, which aren't directly observable or natural in nature, such as gods, nations, money, and human rights. In many ways, that's a great thing. By encouraging and enabling us to imagine a better world for ourselves, faith can help create just such a world. So what I think you're saying is that by focusing on group issues and not just self-interest, religion likely helped accelerate our interest in creating larger, better, and more powerful communities. Yes, which is why religion is such a powerful social binding agent, such a great community builder. At its best, it promotes behaviors that positively affect the whole community. So in a way, referencing earlier podcasts that we've done, we can argue that religion was one way humanity effectively addressed the prisoner's dilemma problem. <laughs> oh my God, we're going to have to go back and redo that podcast. That's right. Religion encourages mutual support, provides a framework for good behavior, and minimizes or removes fear of the unknown. But let's not forget that at its worst, religion is subject to a form of groupthink and control and can be intolerant of both new information and alternative stories, let alone empirically based explanations. In that sense, it's kind of like market capitalism, both a powerful servant and a terrible master. You know, it's funny, although we think of ourselves as the servants, right, within a religion, at least in Western ones. <laughs> One of my favorite authors observed, people don't really want a loving God, a peaceful God. They want one which, whatever it offers, demands everything from us, because by doing so, it validates our beliefs and our membership in a community so that we get to enjoy the benefits of that community. Well, that's a very good segue to talking about what happens when we overlay religion on everything else we do in society. While religious beliefs or faith, if you will, can call us to a higher purpose, institutionalizing faith in an organized religion creates a tendency to oppose further change. Uh, and to preserve the very community that's been created. That interplay between faith and religion tends to make religions exhibit both liberal and conservative features. And those can be further magnified if a religion becomes, you know, widely followed in a community and begins interacting deeply within our social, political, and economic lives. It's important to note here that we're using liberal and conservative in a broad, generic sense, not as synonyms for any current political faction or party. And as it's designed to create and serve the larger community, religion isn't about individuals and therefore exhibits signs of more liberal communal viewpoints, right? Particularly as it relates to how we view others. But because it's a community defining agent, it tends to seek to control individual behavior in order to maintain itself. 
and hence becomes resistant to change, making religion in some senses inherently conservative in a non-political sense. And particularly when the organization becomes powerful and needs to hold on to that power, it becomes more prone to corruption, right? Similar to the dynamics we discussed in the totalitarian episode. An interesting way to illustrate that dichotomy is to remember that Jesus would be classified today as a big liberal, peace-loving, free-thinking, tree-hugging, love your enemies. He was a real socialist by today's standards. But the conservative nature of institutionalized religion makes it oppose change, sometimes to the degree of outright hostility, right? That makes it less open to new information and new ideas, including new understandings gained by science, for example. Yeah, I hope everybody knows about Galileo's championing of the Copernican heliocentric theory and how it was met with opposition from within the Catholic Church and was investigated by the Inquisition and ultimately was deemed to be foolish, absurd, and heretical since it contradicted Holy Scripture. And there's plenty of other examples, even in the more modern day, including the introduction of the Big Bang Theory, which challenged biblical literalism on the origin of the universe and how we better understand species evolution. Obviously, as we learn more things, the monopoly on the truth formerly owned by religion is going to get weakened. So it risks needing to reassert or maintain control just to justify its continued utility. Unfortunately, that can be taken to extremes and cause real harm to individuals. If my faith asserts that I know the only path to truth, which is a powerful means of fostering and maintaining community, then if you disagree with me, you are automatically wrong. And unfortunately, there's so many examples of this throughout history, and we could spend many podcasts just on this, but like people know about the Crusades or the Holocaust or the damage done by fundamentalist Islam or Christian schools that indoctrinated and abused indigenous children or even currently the rise of Hindu nationalism in India. The very nature of creating a closed system of truth so as to try and explain important unknowns both overemphasizes the negative aspects of tribalism and risks creating a false bifurcation between right and wrong. But we should remember that not all religions are equally assertive about the owning of the truth one way or the other, you know, or in the rejection of anyone who fails or refuses to join them. That's true. Many Eastern religions, such as Confucianism and Buddhism, don't. Right. But even in the Western sphere, I mean, I always think of Unitarian Universalism, which has its roots in Protestantism, but it explicitly emphasizes tolerance and multiple paths in the search for truth and meaning. I kind of think that religion like market capitalism could benefit from an outside agency operating to mitigate its downsides. I can't imagine what that might be on a community level, though. (laughs) It strikes me as needing a watchman to watch the watchman, which is kind of not a sustainable solution. Restraint can probably only come from the choices that get made by individual members of any faith. But when operating in a fundamentalist way, religion has the potential to resist this outside control, even on the individual level, right? Simply by asserting such control isn't consistent with its rules. And this is where, you know, the main conflicts comes in civil society. For example, the competing principles of the U.S. Constitution. That's a great segue to let us narrow the discussion about religion to the just the United States. In doing that, we need to remember the religious affiliation of Americans has changed a lot over the last few centuries. Absolutely. I mean, the country is a lot more diverse in terms of the number of religions represented on any significant level, as well as the number of people who claim, you know, no religious belief at all. Even though the U.S. is still dominated by those who identify as Christian and specifically Protestant, those numbers have changed a lot, particularly in the last 70 years, with the largest growth being among those claiming no affiliation, which currently stands at around 23%. 
And even in the past seven years, the percentage of adults who describe themselves as Christians has actually dropped from about a little over 78% to just over 70%. And by the way, of those, only 46% now say they are Protestant. So that means being Protestant in the U.S. is now just a plurality, no longer a majority. The founding of the country, of course, does have a connection to Christianity, as the first colonists to what became the U.S. were often escaping religious persecution in Europe the Massachusetts Bay Colony, famously founded by the English Puritans, or Pennsylvania that was founded by British Quakers, or even Maryland, which was founded by English Catholics. But despite those roots, the Founding Fathers were generally fairly clear in their writings that they didn't want an official religion or even indirect religious control arising in the new nation. For example, President John Adams and a unanimous Senate endorsed the Treaty of Tripoli in 1797 that stated, and I quote, the government of the United States of America is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. Our freedom of religion arguably arose because none of the competing sects that existed when the country was founded were big and powerful enough to get the nod of official approval. It really wasn't the result of any kind of high-minded thinking. And I think they represented this most clearly in the First Amendment to the Constitution, which we're all familiar with, and we sort of say in a shorthanded way gives us, quote-unquote, freedom of religion. But in actuality, the First Amendment has two important clauses related to religion. One's the Establishment Clause that says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And what we call the Free Exercise Clause, which is, quote, that says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And those two sections could be in conflict depending on how they're interpreted. The notion of separation of church and state, although not literally written that way in the Constitution, actually traces back to an 1802 letter by Thomas Jefferson where he spoke of the combined effect of just those two clauses. Yet, despite not having an official religion and being a nation committed to religious tolerance, at least on paper, religion has played a powerful role in U.S. history. The U.S. has repeatedly been the scene of intense religious revivals, which often swept whole regions or even the entire nation and significantly impacted both local communities and the national community. I mean, there's even a currently active debate on whether the rise of the religious right as a political force really beginning in the 1970s forms like what they call a fourth great awakening, which would be yet another religious revival. Interestingly, while many of the founders and later critical leaders like Lincoln were believers, they did not believe in an activist fundamentalist God. The dichotomy between their view of religion and the views of the people at the grassroots level is a consistent feature of U.S. society, and it affects how religion and politics intersect to this day. But you can see how these various religious revivals in U.S. history, you know, gradually, like a boiling frog, push policies that seem to ignore at least the Establishment Clause into our political sphere. As I mentioned before, I mean, Christmas wasn't established as a national holiday in the U.S. until 1870. The phrase, in God we trust, didn't appear on coins until 1864, and by the way, wasn't established as our official motto until 1956. The phrase, under God, wasn't added to the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954. Well, Seth, those last two actions were taken mostly so we could distinguish ourselves from those rabid anti-religion commies that we were fighting. <laughs> Perhaps. And maybe this is coming from my perspective as not being a Christian, but what I found always most fascinating, particularly as a child is that the U.S. has had something called blue laws for many years, which, although they don't exist today to the extent they once did, they're still around in some form in some states. These laws prohibit certain commerce or the sale of certain items on a Sunday because it's the Christian Sabbath. And the Supreme Court has upheld these laws as not violating the Establishment Clause, even though that defies logic. 
Depending on the state, there were laws that prohibited alcohol sales, sales of items like magazines, or even doing work on your own home on a Sunday. I might actually like that as a guaranteed day off. (laughs) We also have an entire state, Utah, where a single religion is so embedded in the politics that everybody just takes it as a given. And that's where I think the boiling frog analogy applies so well, because if you ask most people today, they imagine that all these things have existed since the beginning of our country's history. Whereas in reality, we've just been gradually conditioned to think they're normal. And the tension they cause flares up all the time. For example, we regularly fight about putting the Ten Commandments in front of state houses and courthouses. And more recently, Texas has begun requiring public schools and public agencies to accept donated works of art expressing, in God we trust. Disturbingly, some of those same agencies are explicitly limiting what they display to ones that just happen to invoke Judeo-Christian motifs. Now that we've done a quick overview of religion in the U.S., let's get right into the meat of this discussion, right, and talk about U.S. politics and specifically where and how religion has played a role, right? Sometimes big and sometimes small. The fact that it plays a role at all isn't really surprising. Politics, or at least political campaigning, is all about creating communities of people who will vote for you and thereby give you power to do things, hopefully including promoting the interests of the community you created by campaigning. And as we discussed, religion's a very powerful community builder. Even in, or perhaps especially in, what we might call less tolerant and accepting forms. But let's contrast that with other Western countries, at least, where in modern times, for sure, religion doesn't actually play as active a role in politics, which is ironic because most of those countries have an official religion, unlike the U.S., which doesn't. And of course, religion is much more present in their architecture and their history, etc. But interestingly, it's actually more absent in discussions in politics. Historians argue that the massive religious wars, mostly Protestant versus Catholic, that Europe underwent centuries ago convinced most Europeans that religious conflicts were something best avoided. Because the U.S. didn't directly participate in those conflicts, we may have avoided getting inoculated against the downsides of religion intruding too far into governing. And as a practical matter in U.S. politics, it seems like every aspiring politician must talk about their faith. (laughs) And the irony here is that if we as a society really took to heart the separation of church and state, any candidate running for office would almost seek to avoid or at least downplay the role of their own faith and how it plays in their perspective on political issues. That reminds me about how John F. Kennedy had to defend his own religion as he would become the first Catholic president. Many voters were worried that he was just going to take orders from the Pope. (laughs) Right. And I would say it's even worse for a candidate, you know, to have no religion at all. It would be the atheist who would probably have the biggest challenge getting elected in the U.S., certainly on a federal level. On the other hand, that may be because of our ingrained view of the positive aspects of religious beliefs, the things that enable it to build communities, to foster cooperation, which are definitely things most voters would like to see their elected leaders aligned with. In that sense, professions of religious belief by candidates can be proxies for important values. Yes, but politicians expressing their religious beliefs is often an exercise in exclusivity rather than inclusivity. And in addition, U.S. history is full of politicians professing deep religious beliefs in ways that surely appear to be totally hypocritical. I think I know who exhibit A of that hypocrisy is going to be. (laughs) And to be clear, I'm not just talking about conservative candidates and lawmakers who do this, although they seem to do it to a greater extreme. I mean, even progressive candidates and our current president, by the way, seem compelled to reference their faith as guiding principles. I think part of that, though, Seth, may simply be a consequence of how faith-based belief systems work. 
Religion, with its widely accepted assertion it represents some form of higher power, can provide support for or justify community choices. Whether that's done through coercion, do the right thing or you will be punished, or by appealing to the angels of our better natures, do the right thing because people simply believe in the teachings of the higher power. It's certainly fine and acceptable for people to hold their personal religious beliefs, of course, but when policymakers assume that their personal religious beliefs are the one truth and then somehow bleed that truth into policymaking in what is otherwise a pluralistic society, it doesn't serve the larger community. Pluralism tends to require tolerance of competing perspectives, but that can be hard to achieve when a belief system incorporates all-powerful agents who act in hard-to-analyze ways. There's also always the risk that some religious leader will twist, quote, evidence, unquote, to the dark side, and some non-trivial fraction of his or her flock will follow him, because by doing so, they think they are embracing God's will. Certainly the modern GOP's pursuit of Christian political support, particularly among the fundamentalist born-again believers, highlights both the power and the danger of religion when it crosses over into politics including the distortion of religious principles to justify something that the overall teachings of the religion would otherwise reject. Many branches of Christianity are based, at least in part, on the assumption salvation can only be achieved by following God's laws, and that you'll be punished if you don't, or even just tolerate others not following the rules. There's a lot of latent political power in those assumptions. And unfortunately, as many have observed, the Judeo-Christian Bible can be used to justify many things inconsistent with what appears to be its larger intent, at least in the hands of people who don't think deeply about it or pull specific passages out of context to prove a point they've already decided. I always remember the line that Alan Alda, who played the GOP candidate for president in the drama The West Wing, famously made. He, what he said was, after reading the Old Testament, he just couldn't believe there was a God who had no penalty for slavery. Yes, that's right. And yet, despite that seeming indifference, a very important part of the basis for the civil rights movement in the U.S. came directly from biblical sources, particularly interpreted and led by black churches. Highlighting the conflict between Christian beliefs and racism was critical to getting the nation to live up to its principles. But biblical teachings, so to speak, also enabled the Ku Klux Klan to wrap its violent racism in religious righteousness. Right. And as you know, the KKK, while definitely focused on keeping down blacks, was also very anti-Jew and anti-Catholic and anti-foreigner. Yeah, not a nice group of people. On a lighter note, there's even a famous internet meme which uses passages from, I think it's Leviticus, to suggest that those who wear polyester wool blend suits need to be stoned to death. Right. And lest we forget a modern example of politics leveraging religion as a way to gain political power, we should discuss Roe v. Wade and specifically the political reaction to the original ruling in the 70s. Conservatives elevated that single issue above all else, galvanizing fundamentalists to become single-issue voters so as to get conservative Supreme Court justices appointed. So the larger question then is, Mark, how were conservative politicians able to build such a juggernaut on the back of religion, specifically Christianity, based on a very liberal messiah, Jesus? How were they able to avoid Jesus' liberal nature while successfully emphasizing the conservative nature of the organized Christianity? Seth, I think they cleverly realized they could sell abortion as interfering with the creation of human souls, the divine spark that separates humans from other animals in Christian tradition. And then they also, of course, galvanized fellow conservatives to use this issue as a rallying cry. That's a very basic and very powerful violation of God's will, which has the potential to energize all kinds of true believers, particularly fundamentalists, to do whatever is necessary to accept whatever compromises might be required to stop it. 
More generally, though, political conservatives did a really good job of weaponizing fundamentalist religion by manufacturing or at least exaggerating a perceived threat against people of faith. I mean, this is why people with a straight face could claim there's an ongoing war on Christmas, you know, when obviously the holiday actually dominates American society. Sadly, and I think more importantly, that same type of weaponizing is unfortunately pushing many Christian fundamentalists to assume the symbols and identity of white authoritarian populism, which is a much more serious threat to democracy. As an example, many Christian fundamentalists lambast Sharia law in Muslim countries, right, and this perceived threat of it coming here, but they miss the irony of their promoting an analogous set of policies that are just based on fundamentalist Christianity instead. And they continue to do that because it has given them a lot of political power. And the danger of this corruption of religious values is really increasing. Yes, it's important to note that religion and scriptural interpretations have played an essential role in armed confrontations between right-wing extremists and the U.S. government throughout our modern history. White supremacists, militia extremists, and violent anti-abortion adherents use religious concepts and scripture to justify threats, criminal activity, and even violence. Anti-government conspiracy theories and apocalyptic end-times biblical prophecies are known to motivate militia members and other groups to stockpile food and ammunition and weapons. And end up causing things like what happened at the siege at Ruby Ridge back in 1992. Or a year later at the raid and standoff at Waco. And the more recent kidnapping plots and death threats against governors, election workers, what have you. Many of those criminal activities are justified in part by religious claims, as if it's God's will somehow. And I think part of the challenge is because they're using this end times meme, it's interesting because the Bible itself doesn't set a date for the end of the world. So it's all up to interpretation or making who's doing the interpreting and their personal motivations for making such claims really critical. And it's a fact often overlooked by the people being led. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, social media and modern communication technologies make it so much easier for radicals to find each other and organize themselves which in the end only amplifies the danger that their behaviors cause from this type of corruption. Speaking of corruption, Mark, that is a great setup for discussing one of the questions that will be debated by scholars and psychology textbook authors for the next century. How did Donald J. Trump get to be president? (laughs) Trump represents the epitome, in my mind, of how religion, a force one would expect should be a net positive for the community, can be corrupted to actually be an agent against the values it actually claims to hold. I've always thought that if you were to create a person in a lab, it's hard to imagine a creation who should be more offensive to those that are religious than Donald J. Trump. Yet, he was embraced by folks in many religious communities. (laughs) Let's quickly review Trump's quote-moral-unquote resume. He was married three times and is an admitted adulterer. He has admitted to some sexual assaults. Moreover, there are dozens of additional credible accusations of similar behavior. Let's not forget he created many fraudulent businesses, Trump Stakes, Trump University, and ripped a lot of people off through them. He even stole money from his own charity. He's a chronic liar, having set a record of documented falsehoods during his presidency, right, that I hope will never be exceeded or even neared ever again. And based on the evidence, it also seems pretty likely he committed multiple crimes like tax fraud and leveraging his presidential power for personal gain. As a negative testament about his character, he also had multiple criminals as advisors. 
You know, Mark, by my count, he's violated at least seven of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if he creates false idols in his office, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, and as far as we know, while he hasn't murdered anyone, he has claimed he could shoot someone in broad daylight and get away with it. I mean, do we need to go on? Yeah, I don't think so. So how is it that so many religious believers, whether it's other politicians, it's religious leaders themselves, or even just ordinary citizens, who all claim to hold the moral high ground, not only just tolerate him, but actually embraced him and often sent him lots of money. I think it's in part because many religious people see current trends, particularly in the social sphere, as challenging the principles of their particular brand of Christianity. I mean, you have to remember about the rapid acceptance into the culture of things like gay marriage or non-binary genders or non-traditional lifestyles of any sort. The list is really quite long. Not to mention that the growing religious diversity of the U.S. population plays a role. If fewer and fewer people don't adhere to your particular faith, how can it be the one true path? And I guess this reaction and entrenchment is particularly susceptible to populist political manipulation. And and we know Trump was a master of this. Even though he himself lives a life completely in opposition to the typical Judeo-Christian's personal beliefs. So they tolerated his unfiltered abuse, his imperious ignorance, his untamed egotism, reflexive bigotry, all of which are very much in conflict with the religious teachings they embrace. I think we also need to recognize, though, Seth, that a lot of the support for him was probably honestly sincere. He clearly benefited from the Christian tradition of hate the sin, not the sinner. By always holding out hope for personal reformation and redemption, Christians can tend to have a blind spot when it comes to accepting improper or even illegal behavior. I think, though, there's one other factor. As we referenced earlier, one could argue that the intense religious opposition to Roe versus Wade and the conservatives seeing how close they were to getting a majority in the Supreme Court also led people to overlook Trump's shortcomings in 2016. He just had good timing. I think we also need to remember that accepting his behaviors that contradicted their faith wasn't limited just to Christians. You're right. I shouldn't just pick on Christians because one of the things that was frankly most disturbing to me personally was how the Jewish community writ large did not rise up in a singular voice against Trump, as there are clearly echoes of the dangers of authoritarianism and anti-Semitism in what he said and what he did, you know, from his Muslim ban to praising of Charlottesville white supremacists, the seemingly obvious threats and historical parallels from Donald Trump and his enablers were at best tolerated by the Jewish community and in many cases actively supported. Unfortunately, I think we have to remember that humans are not really rational animals, at least not without a lot of training, self-discipline and constant practice. We all tend to really be just rationalizing animals. Yeah, but I do suspect some of this in my faith specifically was related to a belief that he was somehow good for Israel, for which, by the way, I don't think there's any objective evidence. And and even if it were true, it was a pretty poor justification for everything else he did. Well, Seth, we do have to remember that old political saying, politics makes for strange bedfellows. Advancing one's cherished ideology generally requires compromise with people seeking to advance their own cherished ideology. In that sense, I can sort of see acceptance of Trump by those who on paper you'd think would oppose him as merely an exaggerated example of that kind of political compromising. Well, we will have to leave it to historians, right, to analyze how the psychology of many religious people played out in the paradox that is Donald J. Trump. I mean, no doubt there will be entire university courses devoted to this subject as well. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you're right. Speaking of the future, though, what can our listeners do to steer things back onto a better path? Given the importance and value of religion to so many people, what can we do to both accentuate the benefits it provides 
and minimize or manages the risks it poses, particularly in the political sphere? Well, certainly, first off, we have to be aware of our own biases, particularly a majoritarian bias, where we can all too easily assume that everyone has the same perspective we have. I mean, particularly if most do. And we have to be particularly sensitive to the risk that any belief system which is based on absolutes or divine authority, which many religions are, can cause severe community problems if it's practiced without tolerance. Another way of saying that, I think, is just to be wary of fundamentalist thinking, right? The notion that there is only one answer and that you or anyone else, including an elected leader, has it. That's particularly true in a pluralistic society like the United States, where not everyone believes the same things that you and your friends do. Failure to practice and promote tolerance can really end up being explosive. Absolutely. And remember the parable of the boiling frog. Even though we all make decisions on the margin, one can easily go too far as those decisions add up over time. We all need to remember that personal religious beliefs are by definition just our own, even if they're shared by others. As we discussed in the podcast on corporate personhood, organizations cannot, by definition, have personal beliefs. So we need to be careful about allowing an organization's leaders to impose their personal beliefs. Which brings us to our evergreen lesson, which is practice critical thinking, which I think in this case, among many other things, means keeping your BS detector on high when a politician <laughs> uses religion to justify something. As my mom used to say when she, who was a devout Catholic, was scolding us, you're not using the brains God gave you. Arguments that are based on religion must always succeed or fail in their own merits and not just be accepted because the Bible says so. And the argument needs to weigh all factors in a decision, not just one which happens to be important to a particular religious belief system, even your own. <laughs> wow, Seth, I gotta say, that was a really interesting but exhausting podcast. Let's uh, go back to a lighter topic next time, you know, maybe something like explaining the meaning of life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Something simple like that one. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. This was a lot, but it was important to discuss. And even though it certainly was exhausting, it wasn't exhaustive by any means, but hopefully still relevant and useful. So thanks again to you, Mark. And thanks again to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Reminding you to keep the faith, at least in our democratic system. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.